When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. You know, it was pretty common knowledge that, you know, if you wanted to find a way to, you know, to, to enhance yourself physically, then... There's there's a lot of, there's a lot of options to go to people because you could look at them and say oh this guy knows what he's doing obviously with the steroids so you know if you want to go find someone you can find it. Sean Green only made two All Star games and he's rarely talked about as one of the most versatile hitters of his era. But when you look back at his stats, it's pretty shocking. If you stack home runs, runs scored, RBIs, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average, when he retired, the club looked like this. Griffey, Bonds, Sheffield, Sean Green. His best seasons were on the Blue Jays and Dodgers, but he was part of the Mets for two of their most memorable seasons ever, both good and bad. The 0-16 that went to Game 7 over the NLCS and the 0-7 squad, which had one of the biggest meltdowns ever. Green also dallied with the idea of becoming a New York Yankee when he was a free agent. He is one of the greatest Jewish players of all time and sat out games on Yom Kippur like Sandy Koufax once did, to varying degrees of scrutiny. Now, he's trying to enhance baseball's social media game, a place where MLB has lagged behind the other leagues for years. Green discusses playing in the PED era, what it felt like when Andy Chavez made that catch, and whether David Wright would have been in Cooperstown plus the pressure he didn't want in the Bronx. This is Sean Green's New York accent. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing tremendous. Thanks so much for joining us. And you were born in Southern California, and that's where primarily your roots are, except there is a point where you moved to New Jersey right in your formative years. How long were you in Jersey, and where exactly was that? Yeah, so I was actually born in Chicago. My dad was in Stales. He worked for Johnson & Johnson. And one of their headquarters was, I think, Freehold, New Jersey. So we moved to Freehold when I was a year old. Stayed there until I was about five or six. And then he got transferred out to California, to San Jose. And uh, I started kindergarten there and went through most of sixth grade. And halfway through sixth grade, I moved to Southern California. So I bounced around a little bit. Um, but, you know, it, it worked out because I got a chance to... Uh, at least spent a lot of time in the warm weather where I could uh, play a lot of baseball. Do you have any memories at that age of Freehold, New Jersey? For sure, yeah. I remember waiting for my dad to get home. You know, I was obsessed with baseball from a young age. So we had, you know, a backyard that kind of sloped down a little hill and, and there were no fences or anything. So we'd play wiffle ball and throw the ball. And that was, uh, for me, that was the, the highlight of every day was waiting for my dad to get home from work. 
you were drafted into the Toronto Blue Jays organization, and it was right at the end of their run of winning two World Series championships. You actually got one for their second World Series championship, but your play was limited that year. So how did it feel to be kind of a bit player watching somewhat from afar of a team win a World Series right when you were a rookie? Yeah, it was, it was incredible. I, I got signed in 91 um, late, late in the year, so I, I didn't play that season. Um, and 92, I was an A ball team went out. I went to spring training, but the team went out and won the world series against beat the Braves in a great world series. Uh, so I got to know the guys a little bit and it's my first spring training. And I was, you know, pretty awestruck to see guys like Dave Winfield, Joe Carter, Robbie Alomar, just an incredible roster of, of, of players in the same uh, locker room that I was in. So that was pretty cool. And then, um, the next year I went to double A, got called up in September with another former Met, Carlos Delgado, who's a good friend of mine. And uh, we both got called up together along with a few other guys. And, you know, I, I got six at bats, was 0 for 6, but still just to be there and and see the celebration, it seemed so easy. And I expected, oh, you know, I'll get a few of these when I get, you know, when my career really gets going. And unfortunately, I never did get another shot at it. Yeah, we'll get to the the Mets playoff run in 2006 but for all the good teams you played on making the postseason was a rarity for you over the course of your career you had a really nice start to your career in Toronto and then there was a decision to be made about what to do when you became a free agent and there was a decision that you wanted to make based on actually your faith it seemed like you were starting to really create a bond with the Jewish fans in Toronto and and seemingly wanted to go to a, a city that had a larger Jewish population. What was that decision making like, and how did you kind of navigate that decision in your career? Yeah, I mean, it was partially my decision, but you know, I was still, I actually had one more year, so I got treated. And what happened was that the Blue Jays were up for sale, and they were trying. Um, we were trying to compete with the Yankees, and at the time, the Orioles were really good, the Red Sox were really good. Our division was super tough, and we always, you know, we had a great team. We had Roger Clemens in '98, um, Delgado. Can say God. We said we were finished, just missed making the wild card um, that year. We had another great year. We traded Roger to to the Yankees and got Homer Bush and and David Wells and Graham Lloyd. So we we had you know quite a quite a good young team, young pitchers like Chris Carpenter, Roy Halladay, guys who went on to win Cy Young. So it was it was a pretty amazing team. But you know, unfortunately, we were you know just behind this this powerful AL East. And the team was up for sale and there was, they basically told my agent, Hey, you know, we either want to trade him or, or, um, sign him to a long-term deal. And I just wasn't in a place to want to stick, to stay and take that risk of, you know, kind of being a second or third place team. Um, so that kind of gave me a little bit of leverage because whoever was making the trade wasn't going to give up their young talent to get a guy who was going to walk in free agency in a year. Um, so yeah, the, Going to a place with a large Jewish population was a big factor for me. I I learned a lot more. I grew up Jewish, but was not very religious. And you know, I was in break, you know, throughout Toronto, but even you know, throughout North America, as I was playing, when people when the word got out, there's not too many Jewish players. So uh, I embraced that and felt like it was important to to go somewhere with a large Jewish population. New York was a little scary for me at the time because you know the the Yankees were so good and. And I didn't want to come in there and have that much attention and pressure. I and I felt like L.A. was kind of the right the right fit along from, you know, along with it being my home, it was also kind of the right level of 
of uh, attention that I thought I could handle. That's really interesting. That's a Yankees moment in time where they're they're winning four World Series championships in five years. They'd won in 96, 98, 99, 2000. And of course, they're at the top of the world and, and it looks like it's never going to end. So at that moment in time, you're kind of thinking like, wow, the spotlight is so hot there. They've had so much success. That might be a little overwhelming for me. I think so. I mean, I was, I'm was i a pretty um, reserved guy and, and didn't love the spotlight. I always liked, even in Toronto, I liked being Carlos Delgado's wingman as opposed to being like <laughs> the guy. And I go to LA and I was more Gary Sheffield's wingman. So I, I liked that. Um, I also think, you know, the Yankees had won in 96, 98, and 99. So I'd go there, like, you know, what's going to happen? On, you know, if, I, if we don't win a World Series, then it's a failure, you know? So it's kind of, I said, there, I wanted to go somewhere that hadn't won um, at least in a long time. And, and uh, you know, I, I had a kind of a short list of teams that I was willing to um, negotiate a longer-term deal with. And the, the Yankees, Mets, um, Dodgers, Cubs, I want to go to a bigger market. They were all on, on, those, on that list. But um, for me, L.A. was kind of the top choice just because that's where I was from. And, um, you know, I, I also thought it'd be kind of fun to go in a completely different from the AL East to the NL West and have a total, total change of series. Mm, that's super interesting. You end up in LA, maybe struggling a little bit early, but then you definitely find your groove and have some absolutely eye-popping offensive seasons. And there is a moment in there in 2002, which is one of the most prolific games in Major League Baseball history. You guys are at Miller Park in Milwaukee, and you put together a four-home run, six-for-six six day a record 19 total bases, which is coming off of a couple of weeks where you had not hit a home run. So how do you? How did you feel being so dialed in that day to where everything went right? Yeah, it was kind of a crazy stretch because I got off the first quarter of the season. It was like late late May. I was struggling pretty bad after after hitting 49 home runs and having the setting the Dodger single season record. Then all of a sudden, I'm getting booed at home. Um, which is less common in LA than it is in New York, right? You struggle in New York, you're going to hear it. Yeah. LA, they're a little, they have, you know, longer fuse for you. And I, you know, the homestand before we played uh, the the Mets and the Expos, I didn't hit a ball out of the infield. And I was hitting 230 with three home runs. So after hitting 49, I'm on pace for like 13 home runs. And it was, t it was tough. And then all of a sudden, everything just, you know, I kept working on my swing and, you know, just kept battling. And then we go to Milwaukee. The first day there, I hit two home runs. The next day, I hit a triple. And then the, the third day, I had six for six. And then we go to Arizona, and it was um, another home run with two more hits. And the next day, two more home runs. So it was like this, from being you know really one of the worst hitters in the league to having this ins insane streak. I mean, that's kind of, and that's an extreme, but I was I was pretty streaky as a hitter. When I found it, I, I would get locked in. But that was by far the, the biggest, uh, you know, polar opposite stretch that I've, I had in my career. One of the most amazing stats is your 2001 season. You had 49 home runs, 125 RBIs, and didn't make the All-Star game. That, that season, you're only tied for fourth in home runs in the National League because Bonds goes crazy, Sosa goes crazy, and Luis Gonzalez has his huge home run season. That must have felt crazy to hit nearly 50 home runs, drive at 120, and not make the All-Star game that year. Yeah, that was, that was one of those things. And that was, you know, Bobby Valentine, the 
the, the Mets manager was was the manager. I think they had a little more stay. At the All-Star break, I had about 20 home runs. So I had a really good second half. But still, you know, I, it was one of those, you know, you, sometimes there's always a few players that, you know, get quote-unquote snubbed. And it's not for, you know, any reason other than kind of as you're talking, there's a bunch of guys that had a lot of big numbers. So it wasn't it wasn't a sure thing if you hit you know, I was on pace at 40 home runs, but still it, that, that would have been pretty far down the list of, of home run hitters that year. Do you feel misfortune because you played in an era where guys like Sosa and bonds were artificially enhanced hitting 50 and 60 home runs, whereas you're hitting 49 and you only have, that's only good for fourth in the national league. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about misfortune. I, you know, I was, I was fortunate to have the career I did and, and, you know, I, I used that, um, the backdrop of the steroid era to kind of fuel me to, to show up skinny and strong and, and, and kind of be the opposite type player, just to be the natural guy going out there and, and, um, trying to have the right swing, the right mechanics, a good approach. And it, it definitely fueled me because I was, I was proud of, of what I was able to accomplish naturally. Um, but you know, at the same time, I, I think, the numbers that guys were putting up also financially helped all of us because they drove salaries, you know, higher and higher by putting up big numbers. And I'm sure I identified financially from that. I'm sure that all of you guys kind of knew what was going on, felt like it was a, a wink, wink, nod, nod. We know who's doing and who's not. It's all over the place. Was there any resentment from you watching guys that were that artificially enhanced putting up the numbers ahead of you? I mean, I wouldn't say it's everyone knew who was doing what. I mean, I think as, as a fan, you could tell it's just physically you look and you could see, right. You see a guy that puts 20 pounds of muscle on in a three, three and a half month, four month off season, then that's not, not normal. Um, there's guys that you, you hear rumblings later that I was surprised or guys that came out in some of the different reports that I would have said, Oh, I didn't realize that that guy was, was taking stuff or, you know, allegedly taking stuff. So, um, but at the same time, it was, you know, it was pretty common knowledge that, you know, if you wanted to find a way to, you know, to, to enhance yourself physically, then there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options to go to people because you could look at them and say, oh, this guy knows what he's doing, obviously with the steroids. So, you know, if you want to go find someone, you can find it. But uh, I think it was a, most, I, I don't know what the percentage was. It's something that, um, you know, I think there's a lot more people that have more visibility into what that was like, but there's quite a few guys that, that played clean and just said, Hey, you know, guys can do what they want to do. I'm going to do my, play my game. They can play theirs. So it doesn't sound like you had resentment at the time, nor now any grudges held for what they did. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I wouldn't say there's resentment or anything, you know, looking back, like now I say, okay, my, my numbers probably would have stood out more and my decline as a player was, I think a little more natural than, you know, guys who, you know, played into their late thirties or forties and still put up big numbers. Um, but you know, 
there's no there's no time to to resent any of that stuff you know i i enjoy my career i could have kept playing decided to retire when i did just to to kind of get out of that lifestyle be home with my my family and you know so there's definitely no no resentment no regrets 2001 you're in los angeles and of course the attacks of 9-11 happen and the season is paused obviously they restart the season but you are personally affected by this and on september 26th when you guys resume you donated your entire game's pay which was seventy five thousand dollars to a charity for survivors of the 9-11 terrorist attacks that were in new york i know that means a great deal to all of us that are native new yorkers tell me about that decision and how 9-11 affected you even though you were on the opposite coast yeah i mean it affected all of us it was just a really surreal um tragic stretch just even walking outside and seeing no airplanes in the sky was just like everything just felt like you were in kind of some dystopian movie or something and and for me you know i so what happened is i it was the first year as a player as a jewish player that yom kippur conflicted with a game um i kind of got lucky and uh, the other years there was either it was either in the postseason which i wasn't in or it was just didn't conflict so i decided to sit out a game and donate that money and and you know at that stage um where we're better to, to donate the money than to you know the people that were dealing with the event that was just completely um taking over all of our attention in in the u.s as well as throughout the world by this point you have a lot of pride in being a great jewish ball player and you're a great player without that but now you're being compared to some of the great Jewish ball players of all time and and some would say you were the greatest Jewish ball player since Sandy Koufax that is some amazing company was that pressure was that pride how how could you handle that type of label yeah I mean I I embraced it it, it was definitely uh, you know as I got more attention I had some bigger years then you know I would have it's kind of similar to I think some of the players particularly from Japan and Korea that come over and they have um you know a lot of japanese or korean media and the different places that they go um so instead of having you know 20 or 30 like like hideo nomo or channel park had like i i would have you know a few jewish reporters or different things or maybe they want to become speak of the a jcc in in this in the city because there was a hate crime or so i i had situations like that it was a, it was a smaller um kind of little little community but it was everywhere i went and and you know i i was proud to be that that role model and i try to do the right things and um and yeah it's 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 something that i know how i I always kind of try to remember how i would have felt as a kid um having the opportunity to to watch a jewish player so um you know a lot of kids would say stuff to me in hebrew which i didn't understand but you know particularly in new york and you know they were proud to say hey i'm jewish i'm jewish i'm like oh that's great you know so it was kind of this nice connection and it gave me a little bit of a you know kind of a a home fan base almost every city that i went to it's funny how life works you know things that that happen to you at one point in your life you don't quite understand until you're much later on in life you can look back and have some perspective you had mentioned that growing up you you were not hyper religious 
by the time you get to Major League Baseball and you become a star, you really embrace the faith and the identity. Do you look at baseball as a way that you kind of found that, that if there wasn't baseball and people didn't talk about, oh, Sean is a Jewish ball player, that perhaps you would have not found that connection to your faith? They definitely connected me more. Yeah, and and there's a one of our team doctors in Toronto who became a good friend, Glenn Copeland. He would take me to synagogue, and and it was something that you know I growing up, you know, as a grammar school in San Jose, there weren't a ton of Jewish kids, and then down in Orange County, um, in Tustin, where I grew up, there weren't a ton of Jewish kids. So it was it wasn't like I was growing up in you know the heart of a Jewish community. So I I think. You know, wherever I went, as I was saying earlier, there there was this kind of Jewish community that kind of followed me around, um, in 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 a weird way, and and so yeah, no, I definitely um, embraced it, and and you know, learned more about I learned more about what it was like to be a Jew, and 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 all that as a as a major major league player than I did as a as a kid. The decision to sit out on Yom Kippur was not always met with a lot of acceptance when Sandy Koufax did it. When you did it, was there more acceptance, or did you also find that there was some resistance? So the first year was that it was oh why yes two thousand one. So it was right after nine eleven. So I didn't really. It was a hard decision for me because you know we were a couple of games behind the Giants, and uh, and that was our big rival. The game was against the Giants, and. I was playing really well, so it was it was kind of a you know a big deal offensively to to lose my bat against you know a team that I hit really well against. So that was a that was a tough decision, but it wasn't a big deal because I think nine eleven was was still in everybody's mind, so it wasn't like a media story as much. And and so fast forward to two thousand four. Now we're a couple of games, two or three games ahead of the Giants. Same thing. We're playing the Giants again. And so I made the same decision. I, I played one of the, there's two games that conflicted both of those years. I played in one of the games and sat in one of the games, kind of just wanted to, to kind of make a statement, but I didn't want to, although um, as someone who wasn't particularly religious, I felt like it would kind of be hypocritical and unfair to my teammates and the fans to miss two games against this, you know, in this key series. Um, so that's what I did again in 04. And it became a really big story where they were talking, you know, on, you know, daytime talk shows and, and radio shows about, this religion in the workplace and missing work and all that. And so I was, I was surprised because there was so little, um, there was so little attention in three years earlier, but I guess without the, the nine 11, um, halo that it became a story. And so fast forward again to Oh seven in New York, I did the same thing. And, and you know, I, I just, everyone was very supportive. All my teammates were supportive. And, you know, especially in New York, the Mets have such a strong Jewish um, fan base that um, there was, you know, there was nothing negative said that at least that um, was said to me. I'm sure there's people who had their opinions, but, you know, everyone was pretty supportive. Dodgers, you wrap up a really good career there, go to the Diamondbacks. Ultimately, you're traded in 2006 to a really good Mets team. It's still one of the best regular season Mets teams of all time. At the deadline, you go to a team that's now in the hunt and they know they've got a huge lead in the NL East. They're going to win the division, go to the playoffs. How exciting is that for you to land, not only in New York, where you had thought about playing earlier in your career, but on a team that right there in 2006 is a wagon? Yeah, no, that's that was a big factor. Another big factor was, well, I always wanted to play in New York at some point, um, win better than when the team was already 
had a division pretty much wrapped up. And then I had, you know, six or seven guys that I had played with, some that were, you know, that I'd played many years with. I was, as I said, Carlos Delgado is one of my closest friends. I played a bunch of years with the Duke guy. I played a bunch of years with Guillermo Moda, um, Duaner Sanchez. Um, you know, there's a couple other guys in there. I played with El Duque um, earlier that year in Arizona. So there was a bunch of guys that I knew and I felt really comfortable in um, Arizona. So after LA, which was a big market, obviously not the same as New York, um, I went to Arizona. It was kind of nice to be in a small market and just sort of kind of regroup a little bit um, after kind of deal with some of the ups and downs my last couple of years in LA. Um, so by the time, you know, I was a year and a half in Arizona, I was ready to get back in the fire. And um, so the timing was perfect. And, you know, I, you know, I, was, I just felt, okay, I, I can't pass up this opportunity. My daughter, my younger daughter was a year old. So it was, it was better timing than if my wife was still pregnant. So there's all these, always, you know, people don't always think about the other personal factors that go into a decision, but um, you know, had been the year before, I probably wouldn't have done it because it'd been hard to move, you know, in the middle of her late, late stages of her pregnancy. So anyway, um, once I got there, I was, you know, immediately, you know, kind of just settled right in and, and felt, felt great to be a part of something that was seemed to be a, a really special year. As fate would have it, the Mets meet your old team, the Dodgers in the NLDS, and you guys have them on the verge of a sweep. 9-5 lead, pop fly, Sean Green under it in foul territory, and you finalize the National League DS going to the National League CS, and your quote was, my ego loved beating the team that traded me. No sense in denying that. How satisfying was that to catch that pop foul to, to finish off the Dodgers? Yeah, that that felt great. And, you know, we went back to L.A. We won the first two games in, in New York, and then I had a good game in LA and had a few hits and some RBIs and all that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you, having Laduca, who was a longtime Dodger, Kiramota, Sanchez, all these guys, you know, we wanted to beat them and we wanted to sweep them. And we, we definitely all kind of had a little bit of resentment for, because we felt like we had finally in LA put together a team that was going to win. And, and, you know, we, we, Got to the playoffs in 04 after battling. We had, you know, the Giants went to the World Series in, in 02 and lost in games seven to the Angels. You know, won the Diamondbacks won the World Series. So the West was really tough. It was a tough division. And, you know, we finally said, okay, this is our turn. And then all of a sudden we have new ownership come in and new general manager. And they basically traded a quarter of our team in 04. Um, a quarter of our, our team. They traded six or seven, six guys out of the 25. And we were in first place. So it was it was a pretty devastating moment as a player. It's like, what? We finally got here and now now they're breaking this team apart? Because it didn't match what, you know, the the philosophy of the new regime. And so, you know, now it's three years later and we get a chance or two years later and we get a chance to to play him. Of course we want to beat him and beat him with, you know, really four or five guys that were part of that team. The, the Mets season in 06, you guys had it all. Pitching, defense, hitting, power, on-base guys, bullpen. I mean, it was just, it it seemed, and all veterans up and down the, the mat ready to win right then and there. Some homegrown talent as well. You meet a Cardinals team of the NLCS that most people pick the Mets to, to roll over, but we get into a dogfight of a series. Were you surprised that a team that was only barely above 500 in the regular season, you guys were locked in a seven-game battle with them? I would say surprise. Anytime you have 
the guys in their lineup that they had. They had some, a great closer at the time was was Wayne Wright. Um, Carpenter was, you know, stud pitcher. Supon was, you know, they had guys that were just kind of like guys that were going to give you good innings. Um, and of course, you have Pujols and and Molina and all the like their lineup was Jim Edmonds. Their lineup was was really solid, and they just kind of had a a mediocre regular season, but they were a good team. Um, you know, I, I think what hurt us, you, know, you can always look back and, you know, everyone could think of different, different moments that could have gone differently, but, um, our starting pitching was, was pretty much on fumes going in there. El Duque getting hurt, um, before, uh, I think it was, I don't know if he got hurt before the Dodgers pitching against the Dodgers or if it was against the Cardinals, but him getting hurt just really thinned out our, our starting pitching. And, and John Maine and, and Oliver Perez were two young pitchers at the time and they both stepped up and did great. Um, and our bullpen was solid and everything, but it's just, I think we didn't quite have enough healthy starting pitchers to, to give us the depth to, to win that series. And I think that was something that, um, you know, was, was a big factor, but you know, Hey, we could all look back and think of moments we could, you know, done better plays. We could have, could have, you know, gone our way. And, and anytime you have a seven game series, that's the case. Game seven, though, it feels ordained. It's Shea Stadium. It's Rocket. And Andy Chavez climbs the wall in left field, one of the most iconic moments in Mets history, when Chavez grabs the ball and brings it back and the place explodes. Did you feel like, oh, this is our night? Because I'm a Mets fan, and I felt, oh, that's the symbol right there. Tonight is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, at first I felt that the stadium was going to collapse because it was just <laughs> the whole thing. was You could feel the whole thing shaking. Uh, but Chavez is a great guy. You know, he was just what guy. He was one of those guys that's so underrated because he was, he was. And I play with a lot of great outfielders defensively. He was the best defensive outfielder that I played with. And that's mm. and there was a lot of good guys in there, Gold Glove winners, multiple years. Um, but he was he, he just had a great arm and he was super fast and just incredible awareness of everything around him. Um, so he made that play and yeah, I was with you. I thought, okay, we got this thing. And it was one of those series, too, that the Tigers had swept, uh, whoever, I can't remember who they were playing, but they had swept. And so they were sitting there, and they basically had like a week off. So I knew, you know, whoever wins this series is going to go in with so much momentum and so much, you know, both teams, you know, we played right up until one day off and go, and you're you're much in much better position to succeed, especially a team like ours that had more of an offensive focus. You know, you sometimes it's nice to have your pitchers realigned for the for the starts but you want it as a hitter you want you don't want any days off so i thought okay he made that catch we're gonna get a couple runs here and and you know we all had our suitcases because you know both teams brought all their suitcases and actually had the entire side of our clubhouse in plastic you know to, for the celebration so the thought was that you know we felt like we were gonna win and then as soon as molina hits the home run they had to like rip everything out of our clubhouse and get it out of there because, you know, the last thing you want to see when you're coming off the field after a tough loss is the celebration um, set up to, to roll in your clubhouse. So uh, it was it was a crazy it was a crazy change of events. But um, again, you know, they went on to win the World Series and you got to give them tip your hat and give them uh, the credit they deserve. As we all know, final out is Beltron does not get the the bat off his shoulder and you guys lose in devastating fashion. As you said, the Cardinals go on to win the World Series. If you guys had won that game, do you feel confident that you guys would have won the World Series? I think so, yeah. The Tigers just looked 
it, I, I couldn't watch much of it because I was, it was a little too hard. But what I did see, they, they just seemed like they hadn't played in a week and they were a little, a little flat. If that's, I mean, that's not necessarily the right word, but um, I think when you're coming off the type of series the Cardinals were coming off of, uh, they were just much sharper. I feel like we would have been in really good shape. And I think El Duque was, would probably have been back at some point, And that would have helped out kind of our, our thinning uh, starting pitching. So 06 wraps up. Unfortunately, 07, you injured your foot and then maybe you came back too soon. You were with the team though in late September when it came down to that series against the Marlins that unfortunately game 162 did not go your way. And that was kind of a stunning end to 07 because there was the big lead late and unfortunately it got away from you guys. Was that, which was the more stunning ending losing to in the NLCS in game seven of the Cardinals the year before or losing on the final day of the regular season to the Marlins in the way that you did? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was even that that last game because any one single game could go either way. But you can kind of we had a seventeen game lead or seven game lead with seventeen to play, and you can just kind of feel it slipping away. But what really got us was we went to Philly and and they swept us four game series. I think they might have swept us in New York too. So I think it was that was really what what swung the whole thing was that for, if we just won one of those games or two of those games, then it would have been you know pretty much lights out. Um, and you know they. They had, even though went on to win, win the World Series the next year, I mean, they had good players, um, Utley and Ryan Howard and et cetera, but um, Jimmy Rollins. But yeah, it was that was harder, and that was definitely a, a tough one to to swallow because, you know, we had, we thought we were at the start of this dynasty when you have um, Reyes and a lot of the young talent mixed in with the veterans. It just felt like, okay, you know, the Yankees had their run in the 90s in the early 2000s and now the Mets turn and, and it sort of just kind of fell apart um, much sooner than expected. Do you think that you saw David Wright in his prime? Do you think if David Wright had stayed healthy, he would be a Hall of Famer? For sure. Yeah, he was he was just a all-around solid player and, uh, and he had that extra factor. He's, you know, he's one of my favorite teammates that I had. He, he had that extra factor of just being a, a great leader in the clubhouse. Um, you know, a lot of guys that are in the position that he's in where, you know, you're hitting third or fourth in the lineup or whatever it is. And you have a lot, a lot of expectations, especially in a city like New York. He was also, you know, even at a young age, you can see he was going to step up and become that very vocal leader, but he did, he took that on and, you know, became the captain and all that. And rightfully so, but he's, yeah, he was definitely on track for that. What was the contributing factor to where you guys lost that lead seven with 17 to play? What what would you point your finger to? The team wasn't as good as the 06 team, uh, just on, on paper. I think um, there's a couple of guys that we lost from the bullpen that were huge. Like, uh, well, particularly Bradford, right? The side armor. Um, and, you know, I can't, I can't remember all the, the changes, but I think, I think what made that 06 team so strong was you know, it got to, if you got to the sixth inning with a lead or a tie game, we were going to win the game, even if you're down by a run. Like it was, it was just that type of team. I, in 07, I guess, you know, once it started to, once it kind of starts to fall in the wrong direction, then, you know, you guys are pressing, you could, you kind of feel happy. So happening, it was just like a, it was just a really bad stretch, a really bad couple of weeks. And, um, I don't think there were necessarily, we didn't, at that point, we didn't have like that, that starting pitcher or 
you know, just that stopper that was going to come in and you knew, okay, this guy's going to come in and, and shut him out like a Jacob DeGrom. Um, you know, we had a lot of solid pitchers we had, but we, you know, Pedro was at the end of his career. Uh, Glavin was at the end of his career. So those guys were those pitchers maybe five, six years before that. But at this point, um, it's hard sometimes when the things start to fall apart to, to kind of stop that downward trend without one of those, one of those big, um, aces that, that they were a few years before. A couple of years after you retire in 2014, you found Greenfly, and now this is a company, a software company, developing technology for sports, entertainment organizations, used in Major League Baseball as well, including one of your former teams, the Los Angeles Dodgers. You and I have had a chance to speak a little bit about Greenfly before, but I wanted to know, when you were playing, did you have a sense that data, numbers, metrics, analytics, the scientific part of the game was something that you were particularly interested in? Because that's well before what's happening now with a data revolution. Yeah, I, I think, so for me, founding Greenfly was less about the data and all that. It was more about understanding that content was going to be uh, more and more important as, you know, social media is rising and players want access to that and just kind of, you know, it evolved over time, but get, creating a place where all the content, the photos and short form videos could automatically just distribute to whoever needs to have access to it. So the players get off the field, they have all their content that, you know, brand sponsors or broadcast partners, whoever have their own feed of content of all the games that are happening um, that's relevant to them. And, and then they could share it on their social. We track it for the leagues and teams. So that's kind of, um, it's more about that than about actually like the, the analytics or data side of things. And you obviously had a connection with a certain segment of fan bases by being a very popular Jewish player. Of course, you were popular amongst the entire fan base as well. But image was something that you had mentioned, you know, wanted to reach out to the community. You wanted to make sure that you, know, you had a connection by doing some of the charitable endeavors that you did. Did that kind of trigger something in your mind about what players today could use, as you said, as social media as an outreach platform to reach communities and, you know, fans that, that are rooting for you or all around the country um, through a different type of technology? It, it was really more about saying, okay, this, I, I love technology and this, this is a gap. There's, there's no way, um, there's nothing out there that has automated this process and opened up all the content. And, you know, as a player, social media was just starting. I mean, my last year was 07. I think that's when Twitter might've really got going was 07, if, if not later. Um, so I've talked to all players and I, and I, and I see how important it is for them to build their brand. So to give them the tools that they need and that they want, and the league wants to get the content out through the players. And it, it it's a, you know, a, a win-win for both sides because the, the, the league getting good content through the players to their channels is building both the, the game itself as well as the, the players, um, you know, own personal brands. So it's one of those things that I saw an opportunity and, and, uh, you know, we built some great tech to, to serve it. And I would say that Greenfly is really valuable to the league right now and to fans because I think baseball has suffered from perhaps a lack of identities, personalities, uh, interesting soap opera sagas that some of the other leagues have had. And to find those personalities, to have a magnifying glass and some of the really interesting guys in the league, and there is plenty of them 
or how great they are, their types of play, great plays that they make, I think is really valuable for fans going, oh, I didn't know about that guy. And a league that I think could really, really, really do big things that maybe they've they've trailed in in the past. So how important is that to, to do something that baseball might lack compared to other leagues? Yeah, that's a good point. And in baseball, you know, there's there's so many advantages it has for social media like footprint is, you know, there's 162 games and there's spring training, another 30 games there, and then there's postseason. So there's a lot of content. There's a lot of things happening. And the players, what what we found is, you know, people who are using Green Flag, which, you know, the leagues we work with over 90%, usually closer like close to hundred percent of the players are using, you know, our app, have their our app on their phone or using the content is a lot of times the people that are, you know, have the most personality on social aren't the ones that are necessarily the stars, right? It's, you know, you, all of a sudden you have, you know, that megaphone because you're, you wear the uniform and it could be, you know, a guy on the bench. It could be, you know, the guy in, in the locker room that is, you know, the one of the favorites on the team of all the guys and kind of is the glue to that team. And now the fans could be part of that and they could, you know, have a relationship with that player at, as opposed to just being, oh, this is our utility guy. Now it's that they feel like they know that that guy, and and uh, it's good for him, and it's it's you know it's it's really good for the game to have personalities because people, fans are more interested, more invested in their team winning when they feel a connection to the individuals on that team. Absolutely. Well, such a great conversation. I'm going to end with this. At the time of your retirement, there were only four active players that had 300 home runs. A thousand runs in RBIs, four hundred doubles, and an over two eighty batting average, plus one hundred and fifty stolen bases. A- an amazing resume. Those are big numbers and very, very, you know, versatile in in many ways. Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., Gary Sheffield, Sean Green. What does it mean to be part of that that group? I was very proud to be able to, um, you know. I- have a, a well well-rounded game that's kind of what i i tried to do um and you know those guys are they're they're legends of the game and um you know griffey's a guy that i looked up to when i was in the minor leagues he was just kind of coming up at that point um barry bonds i feel like is the the best offensive player in the history of the game um and sheffield's a you know is a teammate of mine who um, was probably the most dangerous right-handed hitter. If you say there's there's probably three or four guys that I think most teams would say they didn't want to see up in a, in a key situation. Um, guy like him, Edgar Martinez was another one. Um, so he was one of those guys that was in the, the top of that list. So just to be, you know, kind of mentioned in the same breath as those guys is, is definitely something I'm proud of. I think a lot of people would be really surprised to know that you're in such incredible select company. Again, as you said, those are some legends of the game, Griffey and, and Barry Bonds. You don't strike me as a guy that harbors any grudges or anything like that. So do you ever feel overlooked or you don't kind of look at it that way? No, not at all. I mean, I, I look back at my career and I think in some ways I was overrated and in other ways I was underrated. So, I mean, it's, I kind of had, I had a stretch of five years in the middle that were, you know, that were really, really good. And the other years were pretty, you know, they're kind of solid, but nothing too special. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends what window of my career you look at, but I'm, I'm definitely, um, 
kind of you know happy with the way things turned out and you know just keep moving forward now i'm, I'm excited to be you know a tech entrepreneur and, and hopefully things go well there Three 40 home run seasons, four seasons of 100 RBIs or more, two seasons with top six MVP finishes, three with top nine MVP finishes, and now entrepreneur behind Greenfly, which is such a cool company, bringing social media from baseball to the fans of the game. Sean Green joining us here on New York Accent. This was so great, man. Thank you so much for doing it, and thanks for being so generous with your time. This is a great conversation. All right, many thanks to Sean Green. That was a lot of fun to talk to him today. And time now for the email segment of New York Accent. Why not send us an email, feedback on any of the episodes, the guests, questions you might have about New York sports history. You can always send them to nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Our email comes to us from Gerald in Tom's River who writes, DA, Greg Maddox's dogs were great. It's the only time you'll ever see him rattled. Do you think that Maddox would have been the same success if he signed with the Yankees? Well, that was a fun episode last week, too, right? With Greg Maddox talking about how he got by, dominated, forget got by, with finesse and touch in the middle of a power era. But, yeah, the dogs, the dogs start barking in the middle of the interview. He's got to get up during the interview Go kind of close the door and make sure that his wife is feeding the dogs before he sat down. And I don't even think he was rattled. I think that was kind of a signature Greg Maddox moment where gets up, closes door, comes back, mid-thought, picks up right where he left off. You could see the thinking man's game with him. But that's an interesting question about whether he would have been as successful with the Yankees. That was the 92 off season, going into the 92 season, and... That was, or coming off of the 92 season, that was a Braves team that already had those linchpins of, of the rotation, and they, they had this amazing team. So he fit in well with Glavitt and Smoltz. It became best buds, and they were there for such a long time together. It's kind of hard to imagine him with the Yankees and then, you know, a couple of years before the Yankees became the, the dynasty in, in the 90s. So... I think that no matter where he went, he was going to succeed. I think no matter where he went, he was going to dominate. But it does feel like he fit in better in Braves land because he was so tight with Smoltz and Glava. They all kind of picked each other up. They were constants for a decade there. And I think that that probably gave him a certain comfort, a certain sensibility around those guys that he probably thrived a little bit more. But I mean, look, in the National League, he also knew those hitters. He knew the lineup a little bit more, well, a lot more, because he had played for the Cubs before that. So he was probably better suited to succeed in Atlanta versus the Yankees. But, I mean, again, you, you look at Maddox's stuff and you just go, no matter where he played, no matter when he played, whatever he played in, that guy just would have been marvelous no matter what. Send us your questions at nyaccentpod at gmail.com. All right, thanks for listening and subscribe to the podcast. Find it all places that you get your podcasts, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Just search New York Accent. Subscribe, rate, and review. If you leave a rate, a rating, and a review, that helps other people find it, and we would very much appreciate it. Once again, you can also watch all of these podcasts on YouTube. So if you want to catch up on episodes you may have missed and want to do it on YouTube, again, that's, that's part of the WFAN channel on YouTube. Find us there. 
Until next Tuesday, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. We will see you next time. New York Accent is an original Odyssey podcast. <laughs>